Welcome everyone to Classics, a podcast from Kane Academy. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, we explore James Agee and his classic American novel, A Death in the Family. Joining me for the interview is Tom Wurge, Professor Emeritus of English at the University of Notre Dame. This episode is the first of two parts. Dr. Wurge, welcome. Good to be here. This is a novel that uh, is not as popular, or certainly not as widespread as uh, Huck Finn, but I would say it's uh, one of the most important works that uh, I think an American student can read. It's a hard work to get into in some ways, and I think uh, teachers and students might be a little puzzled, especially with that prologue, Mm -hmm. that um, um, prose poem at the beginning. So how would you coach us as teachers and students to start reading uh, James Agee's novel? Uh, well, I think, uh, Andrew, I was always, the Knoxville 1915 is, uh, as you said, it's wonderfully lyrical and very elegiac in many ways um, because you uh, have the parents and the children there on the uh, on the front lawn in a pre um, uh, in, in, a, in a world really before, long before air conditioning <clears throat> came into play. And so you have the front porch and you have a sense of a neighborhood, a strong sense of a neighborhood. And um, I think that both elements in the, um, in the prologue, on the one hand, uh, A.G.'s final recognition in a way that uh, he's not sure about his own identity, you know, will not, will not ever tell me who I am. That's certainly part that appeals to modernity uh, greatly, I think, but a sense of um, uncertainty, a degree of anxiety, uh, and so forth. Um, but what prefaces it is really critical, too, because there, of course, he is really, um, in a way, exalting his family. You know, so my mother, who is good to me, my father, who is good to me, that, that, that all the members of the family... Uh, have such close bonds uh, and are so critical that it's really more the juxtaposition, I think, that A.G. is trying to get at there. On the one hand, the sense that the child is still not quite sure who he is, um, that he still has to uh, find that out. And, of course, he's writing, as you know, from a longer perspective. He's now grown looking back he says um, in the very early pages of the novel that you know the child couldn't articulate articulate things in this way because he was a child, but this is what he would have articulated had he had the uh, the years and the age uh, that he that he now has in in retrospect. Um, and so I think that what's really important for the uh, reader is to try to um, gain a sense of. Um, of uh, the tenderness and the importance of the family and the love among the members of the family, that that's really the context in turn for his trying to find out who he is, trying to locate his own individual identity, which of course we all we all do. That's one of the reasons home is such an important uh, uh, symbol for for Ag and a place of great love. Um, Bart Jamadi, who is the um, 
commissioner of baseball. He was actually a, uh, a scholar at Yale, a really good Dante scholar and Renaissance scholar. But the only thing he ever wanted to be was the commissioner of baseball. He, he grew up as a Red Sox fan. And so the way he talks about it is that Yale was just sort of this annoying interim until he could become <laughs> baseball commissioner. But he wrote a um, wonderful little book called Take Time for Paradise about baseball. And he said um, he thought that baseball was the quintessential, not American game, the quintessential pastime, which is what we call it, which is something very different, something as a, a greater power than just a game. And he said uh, it's very significant that in baseball you have this field of green very often in the midst of an urban, an urban setting, and that the objective of baseball is, of course, to, uh, uh, to get home safely. And that, he thought, has a very strong metaphorical and symbolic dimension to it. It's really what we, we all want to do. We all want to arrive at home safely. And uh, so uh, I think that what's going on here with uh, AG uh, is that, uh, and, and um, Jamadi said this as well, that the... Um, that home is where we form our identity, and it's the place where we also realize we have to break away from to some extent, or leave to, to some extent. And um, but in contrast to those critics who say that Americans are nomadic and wanderers and um, don't know a whole lot about home, and the KG would completely disagree and say that home is where it all begins and. Jamadi says it's a place where our final reunions uh, would occur as, uh, as well. So I think really reflecting on the nature of home, the nature of love, is the, uh, is the necessity for even approaching aging. You know, In the earlier podcast, I mentioned for our audience that I had the, the honor and the delight to study with you at the University of Notre Dame in the late 70s. And I remember you talking about baseball with great passion. And you once remarked that baseball has no timeouts, it right. only has time ins. That's right. And, uh, is, that, is that remark of yours, that observation, uh, germane to uh, James Agee's opening image of, of the families coming out on their lawns after dinner, after the supper hour, right? And uh, the fathers uh, watering the lawns and the, the mothers uh, tidying up in the kitchen and everyone gathering on the, on the lawn for a little get together. Absolutely, it really is. It, there's a certain timelessness in it. Uh, nobody really says what time is it. You know, nobody has a watch. You know, or a smartphone, obviously. And um, I think that that sense of uh, reflectiveness, and quietness, uh, is really, really powerful. And it's certainly something that, by and large, we've lost. Right? Uh, I think that. Um, uh, even in teaching, the uh, all of my colleagues will recognize this. You try to make an argument for uh, teaching students argumentation and teaching polemics. And how would you counter this idea? How would you argue for X, Y, or Z? And to me, it's not. That, that's certainly part of it. I mean, our debate and argumentation—that's all to the good. But uh, I worry much more about reflectiveness. That, that take carving out the time. To really be reflective, that that gets that's harder and harder, I think, for children to do, and even for adults to do. We live in a very noisy culture, a very demanding culture, and uh, time, I think, is seen much more as a, a commodity. Uh, 
but in AG, I think the vision of time you get is a, um, a vision that St. Bonaventure uh, used to utilize, just to repeat a great deal, that time is the moving image of eternity. I think that's how AG sees it, and that's unusual. Uh, do, do we get that through the concrete details of that, that prologue? And, um, and part of the reason I'm asking that question is that I think sometimes students have a very difficult time attending to the, those details, the, the sound of the locusts, the, right. the, the detail of the water coming out of the, the hoses, the, the details of the, the mom's aprons having worked and their aprons are damp from having done the dishes and the collars of the fathers, you know, the, they don't even understand the, the idea of a removable collar, right? Right. So right. all those details are packed into that prologue and I think students find this a very foreign land to be in. And it, it makes it hard to attend to. How do, how do you coach students to attend to that, you know, a good hundred years and, and, and a big cultural distance away? That's a great question. And I think part of it is just trying to um, uh, understand what's going on. What, what are these, uh, you know, the portable collar? What, why did they use this? Why did, why did, um, why do we have them out on the front lawn rather than, than the, uh, than the back, um, uh, the back deck, which is where most uh, play, where most of those are, are now built in the back rather than in the front. And what does it say about their connection to their neighbors and to their neighborhood and um, all the rest of it? I think that <clears throat> excuse me, I think that um, that all you can do is to try to delve into those details and explain what 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 they what they are what they were. Sometimes I think what I've, uh, I've done in the past is to ask, uh, let's say, a group of students to take on some of these details or, or these images that seem a little you know foreign to us right now. But mainly, I think it's to try to get them to think about. Uh, these radically different visions of time, you know, and not, not that time, not that Knoxville was um, uh, always in a state of the eternal. I don't mean that so much, but it's just that um, time has become, you know, we're living in a culture of, um, of quick cuts. And uh, I've read, I think that the average commercial now is something like eight seconds. It used to be about 30 and the average sound bite used to be about 60 minutes. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, 60 seconds. So if you were interviewing a politician, you wanted the politician's view of, say, Medicare, they'd have to get everything within uh, within 60 seconds. Now it's closer to like 10. You know, so can you really explain, you know, your position on China or Medicare or um, uh, or the supposed ending of the Cold War or global conditions within eight seconds, pretty hard to do, you know. So, so our culture has become a, very often, I think, a culture of sound bites, you know. We communicate sort of by bumper sticker, you know, by, uh, uh, by T-shirts. And that's not a good, not a good thing. And so, uh, on the other hand, change is absolutely inevitable. There really isn't a whole lot you can you can do, but I, I do try to encourage students to um, get to a point where they really can, where they're determined to carve out some time for themselves, where, the, where they really can be reflective, not argumentative, um, but they can be reflective, and if they are reflective, it will also help their argumentation, presumably. They can think about what they uh, what they are arguing for, what they believe. Yeah, so just engaging the exercise of reading the prologue is is to invite the students into a meditation, into it a is. reflection. Yeah. It is. It, another challenge for students, 
seems to be that you know, it's the first of multiple um, you know flashes back in time. Yeah. So uh, how do you coach students and teachers to engage the text, knowing that there's a, a back and forth between the, the present and the past in the, in, the, in the storytelling? Well, I think part of it is that A.G. himself always felt uh, that the reader is an absolutely active participant in the novel, that, that that the act of reading is, for him, closer to what it was in the monasteries, where often everything would be read aloud, and people would, uh, reading would have a communal character to it. And uh, so, and reading aloud, in fact, A.G. says that, uh, let us now praise famous men, as parts of it at least are meant to be read aloud, and he knows that this is difficult. We're not really used to that. Uh, His work on, on the South, on poverty in the South. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. He, he started off by saying that uh, he wanted the reader to be actively engaged in in, uh, in apprehending the lives of these people. That's why he said it's, it's a book, but it's a book secondary. He didn't want to call it a book. He wanted to call it very Whitman-esque. He wanted you to feel that you were really engaged by the experiences that he was trying to describe. And so I think that uh, you're quite right in saying that, look, meditation is um, not something that we're habituated to really at all. You know, our culture is pretty fragmented. Uh, But on the other hand, I think that if you can um, make a concerted effort or have the students make a concerted effort to, um, uh, to recover that, in some way, you know, sometimes you can ask them, um, uh, what was your childhood like? Were there ever times in your childhood where you weren't watching television or you weren't listening to, to some kind of machine? You were actually just maybe walking in a park or looking at the sky or, um, uh, or, or just meditating in a rather abstract way. Is it, is it, can you recover that now? Is it possible to recover that now? Or is the pressure too great? One of the last classes I ever taught, I, I was always struck by how um, at the end of the class, almost as soon as the class was over, uh, students would get out their little gadgets, you know, the gizmos, whatever, they, and they would stare at them. And I, you know, what? I mean, is it like a, you know, a message from President Obama? What, you know, what is it that's so critical that you're that you're that you're looking at here? And I, and one young woman, I did, I just couldn't resist. She was so lost in looking at this, and and I said to her uh, something like, Carolyn. Um, uh, uh, let's say that you uh, misplaced that little gadget that you've got. Let's say that you didn't have it for three weeks, let's say, or a month. Uh, I said, um, oh, would that mean that you've lost your identity? Would you would you no longer have an identity? So she kind of laughed, and she said, well, no, that's probably a little exaggerated. But she said, on the other hand, I, I really would be pretty lost, you know. Uh, I really would be. And... So you're always getting back to, you know, the way Thoreau asks it in Walden when the railroads are, are uh, you know, coming through Walden or around Walden, um, you know, uh, do we ride the railroad or does the railroad ride us? That's the big technology, you know. Do we, are we controlling technology or is it controlling us? That's the major question. And he has that wonderful line where he says, that I've just learned that a telegraph is operating between uh, Massachusetts and Texas, and so we can we can hear from Texas uh, in a period of you know not more than 
40 seconds, but of course, but of course, the larger question is, does Texas have anything to tell us? Mm-hmm. Is there anything really? And that's always, of course, the question, because um, our culture is so built on speed, you know, the Comcast, speed is the highest good. And but there isn't really much attention to content. What it, what is it that the speed is telling us, or why is it that we need to hear things um, in such a speeded up way? Uh, that that's kind of the key question. So you only, you do have to ask them to try to recover something in their own experience where they were not beholden to technological uh, objects of one kind or another. At, at several junctures in the novel. We're invited to uh, see how um, Jay, in particular, and Rufus engage uh, the technological or the or the, the mechanical, right? So they're walking through Knoxville, right, and and the train comes rumbling through, right? right? And you hear the the sounds of um, of automobiles uh, in the streets. Otherwise, a beautiful bucolic night, right? right? And and then of course there's the the image of the car. Yes. Uh, both. So in the middle of the night, he, he cranks the car up, and uh, at least in the edition that we read at Notre Dame in your class, um, the way Ag crafted the sound or mm-hmm. relayed the sound of the of the uh, the car right. was almost cringy. It was uh, you know it just it seems um, exaggerated, but the whole you know he clearly is trying to like a, the shape of a good poem. He's he's trying to convey to us the the sound of the, of the car, and then of course it's the car coming back to Knoxville yeah. where uh, Jay's life was lost. Right. So um, is there, do you think that the, the experience there in the, in the novel is a, is, a, is a bit of a clash with, you know, the, the growingly modern world, the world of machines and, and, and technology? Or do you think those are just details of the story that just have to be, you know, relayed because that's just what happens? Yeah, no, I think that, I think that they, it's, it's a real presence, I think, for A.G. And uh, he, uh, of course, one of one of the uh, one of the arguments you can make, and I, I felt this as a kid when we would, we would spend parts of our summers either down at the Jersey Shore or in Pennsylvania. That for me, the train was always a romantic uh, image. You'd hear it at night, and um, you'd hear the whistle of the train, and you'd wonder, you know, where's it going? You know, where? Um, and you know, uh, would I ever want to hop on a freight train and just take it somewhere, wherever it would be? Because at that time, the world was so it was a largely romantic place, uh, Andrew. Um, I can remember I always use this as an example, but I, I was uh, uh, as I grew up, I was a, a big fan of the New York Giants, the baseball uh, Giants, and the Polo Grounds. And we, my dad and I, would often go to the games uh, at the uh, at the Polo Grounds, and. Um, uh, in fact, I went to the very last game in 1957 when the when the uh, Giants were getting ready to move out to San Francisco. Dodgers had also moved, you know, but I didn't care about that. Dodgers were hated, you know, and so. But the the, the idea that the, the Giants were going to move to San Francisco just absolutely floored me. And you know, there were a couple of questions. I mean, one, I didn't think that teams were allowed to move. I, I, I didn't think they had the right to do that. Outrageous. Uh, absolutely. Packing up, moving out of the Big Apple. Yeah, yeah exactly. It was really awful. Um, and then the other question I had is, why would anybody want to go to California? I mean, what, the, I mean, what you know, what is in California that would yeah. be so great? And um, Especially if you're giving up New York, right? Uh, yeah. Yes, especially. No question. And 
So when Willie Mays came to bat for the last time, I mean, there were, you know, probably only 11, 12,000 people there, not much of a crowd, you know, it, uh, it was night, you know, and, but everybody applauded and Willie kept stepping out of the box and tipping his hat and, um, and the applause, such as it was, you know, continued. But um, that was a really jolting experience for me because I realized, wow, you know, the world is not what I thought it was. And, you know, things are certainly changing. And then I realized, of course, that at that point, you know, the farthest, the team farthest to the West was St. Louis. That was, that was there was nothing beyond St. Louis in the Major League, Major League Baseball. And that, of course, was because uh, airplane travel hadn't kicked in. I mean, if you wanted to play in Los Angeles, you'd have to take a train from uh, New York to L.A., which obviously, you know, would mean half the season would be gone uh, while you were traveling. So it was really only when air travel became common that the West opened up to other ball clubs, you know, and Walter O'Malley and the Dodgers, of course, could see that. So he was the one, you know, cut himself a very good deal in L.A. I mean, he t- took over. Acres and acres of real estate and uh, and so forth, um, but I think that that was one of the moments where I realized that um, the world was speeding up, and I think AG I think what AG tried to do was to see technology as um, not as an evil thing necessarily, but certainly to see how you know automobiles could be very dangerous and it was really a, the cotter pin you know in the, in the carburetor that killed his father which seemed absolutely unfair which of course it is and um so i think that but i think uh, ag at that stage at least still saw uh, a quality of romance you know entitled it was not all bad it was not that he wanted to to ban all cars or anything but of course as you know he he has such a sharp recollection of his own childhood you know the the novel is so autobiographical and uh i think that his bewilderment at that time and remember when he sees his father and he can't believe his father is dead. I mean, his father looks perfect you know his father doesn't look as if he's dead as if he's gone uh and i think uh you and your wife wrote about that too that that point in the novel where uh he recognizes what the word dead really means. And it's like the tolling of a bell. It's that existential awareness of it. There's nothing abstract about it anymore. Mm-hmm. It's really, uh, uh, it's really um, present in, a, in, a, in an anxiety-generating way. A, a parallel image to the uh, image when he sees his corpse <clears throat> is uh, when he goes into his father's study, and yeah. there's the... Um, the old arts and crafts chair, yes. and the uh, and then there's the ashtray, and he, and he, and he dips yes. his finger in the in the, his father's ash, and then right. you know, takes a lick, and mm-hmm. uh, you know it's it's an experience of nothingness. Yes, yeah, it is. It's um, yeah. Ag just um, he had such great love for his father and mother, and um, and his sister, and um, uh, I think the the suddenness of the death. Um, in a totally unexpected way, um, out of nowhere, uh, was so traumatic that he he never. I mean, it, it's paradoxical because the, uh, Ag was not an inherently self pitying person. He was actually pretty tough, um, and he um, assumed responsibility, you know, for what he did. Uh, he was not uh, maudlin uh, at all, um, but somehow the suddenness of of the death coming in. 
the midst of the love of the family for each other was just so devastating and so confusing. And so it became this kind of, um, uh, this absolutely formative experience. Well, of course, as it would be for anyone, but I mean, traumatically, yeah. you know, formative. Um, and I love the, and I want to say I love the title because um, <clears throat> what the title does, when they did uh, a, a, a playwright's version of the story on Broadway, it was called All the Way Home. And, which is because it's from the last line, all the way home they walked, you know, in, in silence. And that's a good title uh, also. But um, uh, and, when, and they did the film. They called it All the Way Home also, not A Death in the Family. Not a bad film, by the way. Robert Preston is in it, The Music Man, and Gene Simmons. Did you ever see it by any chance? No. It's all black and white, but it's a, it's a beautiful film. The visit to the ancient relative is just wonderful. It's like a tableau. And is it true to the language of the novel? It is, yeah, yeah very much so. And um, and but the the wonderful thing about the title is um, it's a phrase you hear all the time. Uh, you know, I I can't be at work. There's been a death in the family. It's uh, and yet it's probably the most profound, one of the most profound experiences we could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you've got the prosaic. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you said, like with details, things are very prosaic. Uh, the phrase is prosaic, but it has tremendous power, you know, tremendous uh, resonance. And autobiographically, I should mention that I read this novel when my father died. Uh, I was away at college in, in Michigan, and um, and a friend of my mom's called me to tell me, and, you know, my dad had, was about the third heart attack he had had. I mean, his heart had been really ravaged, and yet he never complained, really, oh, the Viking thing, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think the Viking thing skipped my generation, but my dad, <laughs> maybe my kids. But, because uh, he never complained, you know, you wouldn't know that he had anything wrong with him at all. I mean, he was just, you know, he taught Sunday school. He was a really good man, uh, just a wonderful man. And, um, but I remember reading the novel at the very same time that, you know, he had died. And uh, it was um, it's something, of course, you never expect. And my mom had said, because he had to go into the hospital with the heart attack, and, um, and she said, I really think we should call Tommy and tell him to come home. He said, no, no, I'll be, you know, I'll be fine. You know, my dad always thought he would beat it. You know, it was just one more heart attack and uh, when they did the autopsy the doctor Dr. London I remember him um, said his heart was so beaten up that it was unbelievable that he lived and you know he died at 55 mm. but um, he, the doctor didn't know how he, how he had managed you know that long and so there's a wonderful quality to the title in that sense because it's um, it's a phrase we've all heard and we will all use. Mm. And at the same time, it's one of the most profound experiences that we'll ever undergo. It's a very succinct statement of a very important part of the human condition. Uh, I remember my wife, Jeanette, <clears throat> visited one time. A couple of her students uh, uh, had experienced death. Their, their, uh, one of their classmates had lost a sibling. And uh, the girls said that the, the novel helped them grieve help them understand how to well, grieve, you know? Yeah. Um, towards the, the end of the prologue, uh, as you said, uh, you know, little, the older Rufus looks back on the young Rufus and he said, no one can tell me who I am. 
So is that principally because his father dies when he's a young boy and so suddenly, or is it, is it broader than that? Is it, you know, it's a death in the family, so the whole family's impacted. So is it, is it a family-wide burden that is carried and translates in part to the older Rufus not being able to really know who he is because of this loss? Yeah, that's a great question, Andrew. I think what it, I think it, it starts certainly with uh, the catalyst of his father's death and and relating that mystery to him. But I think it expands out very very quickly, you know, uh, to the human condition, as you said. It really does, um, because you know everybody's affected by it. You know, the very kind neighbor who said your father was like Lincoln. Remember, he yeah, yeah. that that connection. That that in contrast to. Um, a number of the, well, even the family members who are very busy with everything don't really have time for uh, Rufus, or so it seems. You know, there are those who are very kind and very solicitous and very, um, uh, uh, you know, very um, present, really, for the children. And um, and even the mystery of race, too. You remember when that wonderful scene where uh, she sails away like a sailboat, you know, and he Rufus is trying to understand other people and black people and rate and racial questions but she too is um he's talking to the woman who took care of him when his mother was once goes to the hospital to deliver uh, right his baby sister right yeah yeah. Yeah, she's a black woman she's a black woman yeah Yeah, and he smelled you know she's strange to him and um and then he, he makes a comment and then she teaches says well you know you shouldn't um put it that way or just say things in that way. She tries to explain, you know, explain to him. And, um, but I think in those generations, it is true, certainly, that children were not taken into um, the uh, the flow of events uh, when funerals occurred. You know, they, they usually didn't go to the burial. Uh, they um, sometimes were brushed off, you know, unfortunately, the way the, the priest brushes off uh, the children. I, I, that's always such a mystery to me. I would love to ask A.G. about that because he had this great love for Father Fly. I mean, yeah. he, he loved his religious upbringing, um, but he uh, makes the priest a very unsympathetic, you know, a very unsymp- unsympathetic figure. Um, so I think that ultimately, as you go through the responses of um, the family members, which itself is fascinating, right? Yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of Andrew and Ag. I, yeah. I think you know the anger at at the death and the. On the other hand, he, you know the Christmas car- he can't get the Christmas carols out of his head. Beautiful he poet, a yeah, beautiful artist. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, and he um, you you have that wonderful image of the. Um, of the butterfly at the end, uh, and it's so significant that Andrew is the one who's telling him the story. Yeah. So you wouldn't believe that they, you know, because he's cursing out everyone else, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he said you wouldn't believe what happened there in the butterfly, and the butterfly. Well, I I always think Ag was you know very uh, a voracious reader, and I always think that he may be thinking there not so much about. Um, the fact that the butterfly is such an ancient symbol of immortality goes back at least, you know, the Egyptians used it in that way. But in the middle of Dante's Purgatorio, there's a, a kind of pause, and the narrator uh, says, he kind of recognizes that we are vermi, that we are we are worms. We we are all worms. You know, they're a little bit like the, you know, dust thou art and dust thou that shall return, uh, but Dante then says, "But we are worms for uh, we are worms, 
born to form the angelic butterfly, mm. he says. It's a beautiful line. Mm. And it sort of comes out of nowhere. It's like a part of the purgatory where uh, Dante the Pilgrim is pretty confused by things, and he's looking at the world, and the world is... Uh, in a wretched shape, you know, Italy is torn, torn apart by wars, and he, you know, at the very end of uh, of the uh, uh, of the Paradiso, he uh, he politically he becomes uh, convinced that maybe somebody will come into Italy from some other area. He's talking primarily about Luxembourg or Germany. Uh, there were some princes Dante had, you know, some faith in, and um, this did not endear Dante to his fellow Italian. You know, you really want some Germans to come in here and take over Italy? You got to be kidding me, you know. Um, but what's very moving about it is that the person he's relying on had already died. Clearly, he wasn't going to come into the. But that was. But what he was trying to accentuate there is really the mystery of time and eternity, and uh, that somehow Dante be a little bit like in 1980 saying JFK is going to come back. And he'll he'll get us out of this mix, you know. And but I mean, JFK, you know, was assassinated, you know, twenty years ago. But God's time is different from from our time. And so I think I, I like to think uh, I'm not I'm not sure of this, but I like to think that that's really what Ag was was thinking about. That yeah, we are um, bestowing uh, Jay to the earth, um, but the butterfly is significant, you know. That Jay is really. Uh, ascended into heaven and that all will be well and that it's really the uh, unlikeliness that the butterfly would be born in the state that it's in the larvae and everything and then so it's so we are vermi we're we're worms but we're worms born to form the angelic butterfly it's a great image thanks everyone for listening to part one of this episode of classics I hope you're enjoying the interview with Tom Wurge, and will join us for part two as we continue our discussion of James Agee's classic novel, A Death in the Family. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. For everyone at Kane Academy, we look forward to meeting you again on Classics.